Welcome. It's a great honor to spend some time as the Wesson Memorial Clergy staff with Dr. David Watson. We're going to be talking about an interesting topic in just a few moments. Before I introduce Dr. Watson to the audience, let me uh, allow the clergy here at Wesson Memorial Church in High Point, North Carolina to introduce themselves. So, uh, Clark, you want to start? Yes, uh, my name is Clark Chilton. I'm the pa Associate Pastor of Contemporary Worship and Evangelism. Melissa. Melissa Lau, uh, Associate Pastor for Congregational Care and Missions. And Ken. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Lyon. I get to work in the area of generosity and church vitality. Great. And I'm Jeff Patterson. I'm the lead pastor here at Wesson Memorial Church, and it's my distinct privilege to work with these other folks on staff at Wesson Memorial Church. And we're thrilled today to be able to share some time with Dr. David Watson. We've uh, all been influenced and blessed by David's ministry. David, as most of you probably know, is the uh, academic dean and professor of New Testament at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, he received his PhD from uh, SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. He's an ordained elder in the West Ohio Conference of the United Methodist Church, married to Harriet, and has two sons, Luke and Sean. Um, some of his work that's impacted me are some of the books he's written, uh, such as uh, Wesley Wesleyan's and Reading the Bible as Scripture, which he did with Joel Green, and key United Methodist beliefs, which he did with Billy Abraham. And then most recently, uh, the book he wrote entitled Scripture and the Life of God, Why the Bible Matters Today More Than Ever. So with those words of introduction, David, we are just thrilled that you are giving us uh, this chunk of time from your very busy schedule. Thank you. So it's the, an honor to be here with you. Well, thank you. It's an honor for us. So my question is simply, uh, what do you see God doing right now uh, among the people called Methodists? Uh, where do you see us going? Um, I know you probably don't think you're a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I'm going to ask you what you think you see coming uh, okay. down the road um, for the people called Methodists. Um, so what God's doing right now that I see is God is restoring a hunger. Um, for holiness among the people called Methodist. For a long time, at least the United Methodists have um, have really been a mainline tradition. And uh, I, I think that at least part of the church now is ready to say that's not enough, um, that the West movement when it started was a revival movement. It was a renewal movement within the Church of England. But now we're the ones who need to be renewed. And so I think God is restoring that hunger. Uh, God is creating in people a desire to be in deeper relationships with one another and with God. Um, God is, is restoring a desire for sanctification in the hearts of people. I mean, they, they want to be changed. Just the same old, same old isn't enough. It's not enough just to, to go through the motions or just to hear a good message on Sunday morning. It's there, you know, my, my friend Randy Clark wrote a book called There Is More, and that's what people want. I mean, people want more. And in the DNA of Methodism, we can offer them more. I mean, it's, it's really not we who offer it, but it's God who offers it. We just sort of tell him, tell people where to get it. And so um, I just see God across the globe restoring in people a desire for the sanctifying transformation that comes by the power of his Holy Spirit. And where are we going? I hope that's where we're going. Um, I know I, that, let me throw this out at you. Sure. I know that it was over the last three decades, I've spent a significant amount of time studying revival, how God awakens, renews the church, the body of Christ. And, um, and there's been some tremendous revivals, tremendous renewal movements uh, scattered throughout our, our history. Sometimes with that, 
comes um, some some degree of chaos, yeah. some degree of messiness. Uh, it usually involves realigning of relationships, uh, maybe a change of some relationships. Uh, there's usually a financial component uh, that that's at play, as as God is doing a, a great spiritual work. Uh, sometimes it uh, feels a little like childbirth. The product is wonderful, but it's rather painful at the time. So I know there's a lot of uh, uh, questions and um, anxiety and just some concern about where are we going? How are we going to get there? What's it going to mean for most United Methodists in our churches? Uh, any insight on any of that? It is... Um you know, the development of kind of this new Methodist movement has been, um, it's been difficult in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, one of the difficult things about it is that everybody involved in it is an imperfect person like we are. And so we're bound to make mistakes and step on each other's toes and sometimes say things the wrong way. But I, I really believe that there is within Methodism a contingent of people who are um, deeply dedicated to moving the church in the direction of holiness, holiness. And so, um, but it is, it has been, there have been difficulties. There's no question about that. And there will be difficulties. You know, one of my mentors, Billy Abraham likes to say, there are no problem free situations. And whatever, you know, a new denomination, a new Methodist movement, whatever is born out of this, it is not going to be without problems. It's going to have some difficulties. But I think that if we keep the main thing, the main thing, I think if we keep the salvation available to us through Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at the center, and we always make these our goals, then I think that regardless of these problems, um, that this movement movement is going to bear incredible fruit. And I think just picking up on that a little bit, and um, these other folks will have some questions in a moment too. Um, just picking up on that, I, I know none of us at this point really know. We may have some assumptions. And I'm just speaking for myself. Um, you know, there may be the birth of one or two new movements. I think I, think I, see, I, I see whatever comes out of this time in our history. Uh, will lead to maybe several different renewed expressions. I think even the the, the post-separation United Methodist Church will be different. It will Whatever's be. Whatever's birthed will be different. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how many movements will be birthed. Um, do you have any words of wisdom or insight? I, 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 I just know that God's doing some something remarkable, and there'll be benefits in many different ways, many different places. You know, first of all, I think we've got to get to a point where we can bless one another and say, look, we don't have the same vision for the church. Um, we can love each other and we can regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But in terms of functioning under a single polity, that that's not working. And so we have to acknowledge that and, and say to folks, look, you know, I love you. And I want God to bless you. Um, if you're a progressive, if you're a, a centrist, if you're a conservative, if you don't really identify with any of these, you know, but I love you and I want God to bless you. But working within a single polity is not going to work for us because we have very different visions of the Christian life. And we just have to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think that probably... Um, each movement will flourish in its own way more fully than the United Methodist Church is flourishing now because movements tend to flourish when there is a unified uh, sense of direction and a clear identity. Right now, the UMC is in a serious identity crisis, right? We don't know who we are. Um, we don't know what our public witness is. And until we get past that, we don't have any any hope of flourishing. Now, I mean, I, I believe that God has given us, I, I'm in the traditional camp, as you know, and I believe that God has given us 
a vision for the future and a pro and a and a, a vision for restoration you know there's a lot of there, there are a lot of things in our methodist heritage that we have not preserved for example this notion of social holiness okay which by that wesley meant becoming a holier person in community with other people class and band meetings for example i think it's it's imperative that we get back to this um, I think it's imperative that we develop a clear sense of what our doctrine of scripture is. Um, I think it's imperative that we rethink the office of the bishop. Um, once we, I, I think, recover these aspects of our heritage that we've lost, I think we'll be in a much better position to help to lead revival both in the United States and beyond. That's what I'm really hoping for. I'm hoping for revival. I don't think it's God's will that the church continue to shrink. I don't think it's God's will that the bottom fall out of the church in North America uh, the way it has in Western Europe. You know, I, I don't think that's God's will. I think um, if we don't do things differently, that's probably what's going to happen. But there has to be a lot of intentionality. There has to be a lot of prayer. And there has to be a lot of repentance, but I do think that God wants there to be renewal in our churches. David, for some of our listeners and viewers, um, they will not be familiar with your excellent work, not having read anything prior to this podcast. Could you help them by giving some definition, painting a picture of what you mean by holiness? Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit forming you into the image of Christ. That's what holiness is. It's God shaping your character and, and making you into the person that you are always meant to be. I mean, Wesley, like John Calvin, believed that all of us are, are deeply, deeply affected by sin. And sin tarnishes the image of God in our lives. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to say, God, I want to change. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to think this any this way anymore. I give my life to you, and I'm asking you, remake me. Make me into the person I was always meant to be. And we believe that God's faithful, that when we ask God, he does that. And, and by the power of Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're made new. Wesley called it new birth. Now, he didn't think about that. I mean, think of that. That he got that out of John three, but um, it's it's new birth. That's what we are. We and and another word for it is regeneration. You know, God is making us new. That's what holiness is. And holiness, it isn't just about the individual, right? That as individuals are sanctified, as individuals are made holy, institutions can be made holy as well. And so, what we're hoping for is not just the sanctification, and by, by sanctification I just mean making holy, not just the sanctification of individual people, but also the sanctification of the church, the ongoing sanctification of the church. And that's a great question, Kim, because that also reminds me that um, we're, we're doing quite a bit of Methodist speak here, uh, and who knows who's going to be listening to us. Let, let me ask you one real specific question, which some of the background of all of our discussion, at least at this point in our history. Um, part of what's creating uh, this unique moment uh, in our history is that when we have our general conference next September, one of the proposals that is coming before general conference, the main governing body of the United Methodist Church is, is a protocol for separation that um, has been put together from uh, by, by a great team of bipartisan leaders from across the spectrum of the church. But this protocol will allow, if it passes, will allow for uh, some divisions to happen, some different polity, polities to be established. And, um, you know, again, none of us know exactly what will come out of General Conference, but I think most of us feel, and I'm, I'm speaking for me here, most of us feel that protocol will pass. Now, it may pass in some amended forms, uh, but it will pass general conference. 
So that will um, allow and maybe even, it will allow and propel the creation of some new bodies in Methodist Methodism. Um, how do you feel about the protocol and, and, and that whole scenario? Not asking you to look into your crystal ball or anything, but um, that for people who may be hearing some of this for the first time and learning about Methodism and holiness and sort of what's dividing us and what's creating the need for some new polities, new branches. Um, they, they probably have never even heard of the, the, the protocol for separation, but that's part of what's bringing us to, I think that bringing us to a Kairos moment yeah. of, of something really great being birthed across the spectrum. I think the, the protocol, the protocol would basically allow us to um, form a more progressive. Um, it would. It would. What? Okay. Let me back up. What it would allow is the formation of at least one new denomination, and this will probably be the. Well, this will be the traditional kind of a traditionalist, a more. If you the word maybe. I mean, some people use the word conservative. That has political connotations that I don't really like. Um, but a more traditional expression of Christianity than other people want within the United Methodist Church. Part of the reason that we are um, doing this right now is because we're kind of deadlocked um, in an argument over, um, among other things, human sexuality. Um, but also, you know, topics like uh, the authority of scripture, um, the uh, connection between um, sex and gender, and a whole host of other issues like that. I mean, there's, there's really not one issue that is dividing us. I mean, we are looking at fairly radically different visions of the Christian life. When the United Methodist Church was formed, it was formed on the basis, on the principle of doctrinal pluralism. In other words, we can have these different visions of the Christian life within one denomination, but it hasn't worked because those those visions have become so radically different from one another. And that formation of the United Methodist Church was 1968. 1968. We, we, put, we put the United Methodist Church together as sort of the height of the ecumenical movement when we all tried to really kind of come together with that sort of pluralistic vision. Right, right. And, you know, it's just become clear to a lot of people, not everyone, but, but to a lot of people that we can't go on like this. Uh, we're fighting with each other, and that compromises our witness to Christ. You know, I, I, uh, I'm not mad at progressives. I'm not mad at centrists. A lot of these people are my friends. I care about them. I want them to thrive, and I want God to bless them, but we don't see how the church should work in the same way as one another. And so um, the protocol would give us an opportunity to birth a new traditional denomination. And really the um, centrists and progressives would keep the United Methodist Church, but there could be what we, might, what we call a liberationist Methodist Church, a very progressive wing of Methodism also split off from the post-separation United Methodist Church. I hope that's not too too much shop talk. I feel like it's it's hard to talk about these things with and make them accessible uh, to folks who have not been in these conversations. But I, I think, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. And I, I do come from that more traditionalist spectrum of, of, of our tradition. Uh, I haven't changed as I've been for 35 years. Um, but uh, I, I, and I, my prayer is that all the different groups will be able to be who they feel like God's calling them to be. And that we can do um, this period of our history with um, as much grace and love. And I think across the board, it, it will allow for renewal. Uh, the the, the, the post-separation United Methodist Church will be different. Uh, I, I think if people are saying that, you know, you either split off or stay with what you've always had, that's a rather disingenuous statement. Right. Uh, the post-separation church will be different. Uh, and then the obvious new expressions will be different, but it will allow the difference of creation of polities. And I think across the board, we've been saying for decades, 
our structures also just needed some reformation. Right, right. And, and right. this will allow for that. That's so, definitely um, true. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes you just need to hit the reset button. Yeah. And, um, you know, and as a Protestant, of course, we have seen God at work quite a bit for the last 500 plus years, bringing renewal by division. Mm-hmm. And that's who we are. So um, with that, the rest of you ask David some questions. Uh, that's, that one can and, it's uh, interesting you, you brought up the uh, Protestant because it makes me think of the time period of, of, the, of, of the Reformation when Luther, I'm going to loosely paraphrase Martin Luther here, but I've read somewhere he said, you know, uh, it's time for us to go each to go the way of our own conscience. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where we're at at this point in the life of the Methodist Church. One thing about um, this conversation that comes up over and over again that doesn't get discussed a lot is the role of postmodernism and the, the thought process of a lot of, um, particularly those on the progressive or liberal side of this conversation. Uh, and for those listening, a, a short definition of postmodernism that I think works pretty well is the rejection of meta-narrative. It's the worldview that says, uh, we all don't live under the same umbrella. We can have our own individual umbrella with which we move and live and make our decisions. Um, and so that, especially with young people, I'm, I'm barely clinging to that moniker for, my, for myself, but I'm, 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 I'm going to keep it for now. Uh, young people, um, particularly, they all think in a postmodern way, but they don't even realize it. Right they are rejecting meta narrative and see it as circumspect or um, hurting my uh, kind of harming my party, if you will. And yet you're seeing an uptick of young adults who are hungry for order and religious experience. And I know in your spirit, um, spirit and truth podcast, you've talked about how your son and his friends have returned to like the Catholic church. I'd like to talk about yeah. that a little bit about this upswing and young adults actually saying, no, I'm not going to go with the rejection of meta narrative. I want a micro narrative for my. Yeah. And, and the reason I think that's so important, Clark, and I, I'm excited to hear what you have said about that, David. And there's some people coming at us on the traditional side of the church saying that what we're doing is setting ourselves up for the loss of all, you know, all the generations younger than, than I am. And I don't think that's true either. No, I think that's a giant assumption that yeah. every young person is a certain way. That's a huge brush to paint young yeah. people with. That's it is. Care. It is. My son, who is uh, a freshman at Asbury University now, uh, once he moved out of the house, he uh, began attending an Anglican church. And he, um, his friends, a few of his friends have converted to Catholicism. And I think part of the reason is that these simply provide a description of reality and um, ritual practice that they're not finding within Methodism. Um, it's, It's unclear to him why he should be a Methodist. How is it any different? This is, this is definitely going to be a question for the traditional side of the church. How are we any different than anyone? Why do we need a new traditional Methodism? Why don't we just become, uh, why don't we join the Anglican Church in North America? Or why, why don't we join the Free Methodist Church? Or why don't we uh, join the Southern Baptist Church? What, what is different? What is new? What are we saying that someone else isn't already saying? And, and until we can answer that question... And I, and I think we're doing a good job of that. But I, until we can answer that question um, uh, more broadly than we have, uh, people are going to be asking. Postmodernity um, is a funny thing because on the one hand, you get this kind of relativism with postmodernity. And so, well, that's, that's what you believe, but this is what I believe. Neither of us has really access to absolute truth, and so you do your, your thing, I do my thing. Okay, that's, that's one form of, of progressivism or relativism. Uh, but there's also a kind of authoritarian relativism, or excuse me, progressivism that's become much more popular, especially on university campuses. Um, if you're familiar with the story of Evergreen 
College in Washington and Brett Weinstein, or um, if you've ever read the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, um, which talks about that incident, there, there is a kind of an authoritarian progressivism that is kind of the descendant of that relativistic progressivism. And the idea is, is that since there is really no truth with a capital T governing all of our lives, we kind of band into groups with, com with a common sense of what truth is. And then it becomes a matter of struggling with one another over uh, power, the distribution of power. And so um, we feel like these folks have had too much power and these folks have had too much power. And so we want to take that away from them and we're willing to do almost whatever is necessary in order to do that. So you see, for example, on campus, uh, conservative speakers being, um, you know, riots on campus over conservative speakers and these kinds of things. Um, because what will, I mean, the idea behind it is there needs to be a redistribution of power. And if these people speak, it's harmful to me. Um, it hurts me. It does violence to me. We can't allow it to happen. And so I'm going to do whatever is necessary to prevent it from happening. So, you know, post-modernity is actually a really complex phenomenon and getting more complex all the time. And, and I continue to try to understand what's happening in the culture. But in the absence of what you call a meta-narrative Clark, which is just a, you know, uh, a grand story that governs a, a large swath of people, we develop these micro-narratives and then we kind of jealously guard our space in the world the, uh, of, for me and the group that shares my micro-narrative. And I don't think this is having good results right now. Part of this has been because of the you know, significant decline of Christianity in the United States. I mean, that was a large part of the meta-narrative for a lot of the country. I mean, um, now only about 65% of people in the U.S. identify as Christians, and that number is continuing to decline. And uh, I think, you know, I pray for revival in this country because I think that that trend needs to go in the other direction. Definitely. I read a book by James Emery White called Reaching Generation Z, and he talks about how, like you said, 50 years ago, on a scale of, of one to 10, general Christian knowledge, most people could have a four or five. If they're super holy, maybe a nine. Um, right. He said, now people are at a zero, not a judgment, just a reality. And so, but churches are still ministering to the culture as if they're five. It's yeah. totally missing uh, where people are at. I mean, I think there's an element to evangelism we need to get back to helping people move from a zero to a one. Right. We can't assume any significant knowledge of the faith. I mean, people I'm sure have, have heard of Jesus and heard of the Bible, but they don't, don't know what's in it and they don't know what Jesus is about. And they certainly don't know the way in which he can change their lives for the better. Exactly. So we, we, have to, we have to figure out new ways of reaching people. My friend Matt Reynolds, who um, is a president in Spirit and Truth, is really good at this. Um, Spirit and Truth is a good resource if I can put a plug in for them. Sure. This is a great resource. Okay, David, in the article you wrote for uh, Firebrand Magazine, you talked yeah. about the emerging role for bishops yeah. as defenders of the faith. Um, you had several very fine things to say about that. It, it perked for me the curiosity of how you see the role of a pastor in a new expression of Methodism. Uh, particularly in the culture in which we live? That's a good question. I mean, I think in the traditionalist movement that is emerging, pastors are also going to have to be, maybe not defenders of the faith all the time, but certainly clear expositors of the faith. I mean, we have to be able to give an account of the hope that is within us in a winsome way, in a way that makes sense. This is one of the reasons that I think um, 
Methodists need to take up the task of apologetics. We've not been very good at this. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, you've got some great apologists. You've got, um, for example, Tim Keller. Um, yes. right. I, I would, is, is William Lane Craig in the Reformed tradition? I, I think he is. Um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have Bishop Robert Barron. I mean, and in the Wesleyan tradition, uh, we're behind on this. And what, what is, what is um, apologetics good for? Apologetics is good for uh, engaging the argument of Christianity's culture despisers. So a young person may come up and say, you know what? I can't believe all this Christianity garbage because this reason you're anti-science and you're anti-reason and you're mean and another reason. And then you say, okay, well, let's talk about these things. Let's first, let's start, start with anti-science. And you, you engage them about these matters. But if we can't do that in a compelling, convincing, winsome, and sophisticated way, we're not even in the game. So we're, we're going to have to, we're going to have to reclaim the task of apologetics in this. And pastors are going to have to be able to do this. But I don't think apologetics is, generally speaking, going to lead people to Christ. You know, I think that what's going to lead people to Christ is, well, first, first of all, the work of the Holy Spirit. But an encounter with God, I mean, we're going to have to get um, to reclaim this notion of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that Wesley talked about. You know, the laying on of hands, asking God to fill people with the Holy Spirit, to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are the kinds of encounters that are really going to solidify people within the faith. It's like Paul said, you know, in, in the first, in uh, first Corinthians one and two, he's talking about these people who, these great orators who have come into the Corinthian church and they look good and they sound good and everyone thinks they're amazing. And Paul says, well, guess what? I didn't come to you like that. I didn't come to you with plausible words of wisdom. I came to you with a demonstration of the spirit and power. And that demonstration of spirit and power is really what is going to cement people within the life of the church and show them, oh, wow, this is real. I mean, the, the apologetic arguments were good for engaging Christianity's culture despisers. But in terms of making God real in my life, something that, that I would give my life for, there's, there's nothing like uh, an, uh, a personal encounter with the living God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's that's something else that our pastors are going to have to get comfortable uh, facilitating. So, uh, being a pastor, I I I have only one hundred percent respect for pastors. It is hard work. It is it is tiring work. Um, I, you know, I I want to honor pastors. Um, having worked for a short time in pastoral ministry, I know that it's difficult and it's getting more difficult all the time. What do you see as the role of clergy women uh, in ministry in this uh, new expressions of Methodism? Right. So in the traditional, we, um, we have, and I'm only speaking for us, I, I assume that women will occupy, um, still occupy um, a role in every wing of the church. Let me say that to start with, you know, every group that comes out of this division, I expect women in leadership to occupy an important role. Um, my work has been with the traditional side. And so, um, and we have always had women leaders among our ranks uh, on the traditional side and some, some just outstanding women leaders like Carolyn Moore, Jessica Legrone, Madeline Carrasco Henners, uh, and some, some really strong younger women leaders too, such as um, Elizabeth Fink. And uh, even within, you know, my circle here in Dayton, I see just some, some amazing women leaders who are, who are younger and sort of coming up through the ranks and, and ready, gonna be ready to step into strong positions of leadership in a new traditional vision of United Methodism. Um, I'm personally, you know, 100% committed to uh, the equality of women at every level of the church and any Methodism that uh, any, any branch of Methodism that didn't 
that was not in agreement with that is not something that I would be a part of. I just feel too strongly about it. Mm -hmm. Among the conversations among traditionalists, I think that is the general sentiment. I agree with you on that, David, all the, all the conversation I've heard. It's interesting to know that in, in revivals throughout history, the spirit has always, every time, women have risen as evangelist preachers, whether it's at Pentecost, whether it's Paul baptizing, whether it's Azusa Street, whether it's obviously John Wesley at the time was quite, um, was quite the, probably got a lot of hate mail, if you will, um, for having women preachers as well. But maybe our, some of our listeners don't, don't realize that. It's not a new phenomenon, not just of the Methodist movement, but of the work of the Holy Spirit throughout yeah. the centuries. Great question. Thanks, Melissa. Great question. I, I, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing, I just, I, I have some, some women leaders that I know through the work of the seminary and I am just so excited to see what God is going to do through these women in the decades ahead. I mean, the, these women are anointed proclaimers of the gospel. They are anointed leaders. And it just excites me to think about um, the people that they're going to lead to Christ. I mean, I, I as, a, as a seminary professor, it, you know, it really fills me with joy to see people who have been my students, men or women, who are um, such effective and wonderful evangelists as these folks are. David, if I may, I want to circle back to that role of pastors, male and female, in this new, in this emerging expression of Methodism. When we're, when we're talking about uh, being apologists, also uh, signs and wonders, the, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I'm wondering if the role of the pastor in this as well is, is not being the central person to whom everybody brings the seeker or the person who wants to know more. It is that of the, the equipper, the teacher, the sender, uh, preparing our congregation to do that work in the larger world. Yes. Am I off track on that? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, we, we as Protestants, we do believe in the priesthood of all believers. Um, pastors are called, our people are going to be people who are called into a ministry of word, sacrament, and order. I mean, they have specific responsibilities over these in the life of the church. Um, uh, deacons are called to uh, a ministry of primarily a ministry of word and service. Um, but elders are called into word, sacrament, and word. And, um, but that's not to suggest that they should be the primary focus of life within the church. I mean, what we're trying to do is get people to encounter the living God who transforms them in, in such a way that they bring other people into the same encounter with the same God. And, and that's really where uh, the change is going to happen. You know, it's not, um, I, I, I certainly value the work of the clergy. I am an ordained elder myself. I have nothing but respect for the work of the clergy. And at the same time, uh, a new Methodist movement can't be entirely clergy-centric. I mean, the, the role of the laity in the life of the church is going to have to be, I mean, laity comes from the Greek word laos, the people of God. This is the people of God. This is, these are the people who have been adopted into God's household as sons and daughters. And their job is to go out and bring people into that household so that they can be adopted as sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. And the more people that become adopted into God's household who experience that life-changing power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the more like the kingdom of heaven this world actually is. And that's what we're going for. Just as, a, as an example of, of what you're saying, David, I was in a meeting last night with some of the leaders in our annual conference who um, are part of the traditionalist movement. And the whole meeting, the whole conversation was about how we can um, uh, do a better job than we've done as the United Methodist Church at uh, 
helping minorities and women and laity rise to places of leadership and how to be um, do a better job of being a global church. Um, so I think people have do have a misconception of uh, uh, the, the traditionalist churches. In some ways, when I look at the churches in my own communities where I've served that have been most multi-ethnic, uh, that have been built across socioeconomic lines, a lot of times what I've seen in those churches is not sort of a bland, modern lack of theology. I, I've seen strong expressions of traditional Christianity yeah. that pulls people together. Right, right. Um, the evangelical track record on race has has been uh, a mixed bag, right? Sometimes it's been good and sometimes it's been horrible. And, you know, there are a lot of people in the traditionalist movement who self-identify as evangelical. And we're going to have to be um, just upfront about saying, look, you know, if this ends up as simply another form of kind of white conservatism within the United States, um, then it's not the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. that, that God's kingdom looks different than that. It looks like people of, of every tongue and tribe standing before the throne and praising God. Mm -hmm. That's the church that I want to be a part of. That is the global church. I mean, what, what we're hoping with this traditionalist movement is that it will tie us even more closely into the global church. And in, and in the Southern hemisphere, you know, the world is in one of the periods of greatest, the maybe the greatest period of revival we've ever seen. I mean, God is pouring out the Holy Spirit in Latin America and in Africa and in Asia. And people are, are sacrificing everything uh, for Jesus. You know, and I, I have friends in Cuba where it's, it's not easy to be a Christian. They've grown their church um, about 100 people a year for nine or 10 years. You know, uh, they're reaching people in the poorest area of Havana. Um, in Africa, God is pouring out the Holy Spirit. We're seeing signs and wonders. That's what I want to be a part of. I don't want to be a part of just another sect of American generic evangelicalism, white American conservative evangelicalism. That's not my dream. I don't think that's God's dream. It's not. I, mean, I think it goes back to what you said earlier, David, that I can't imagine any expression coming out of Methodism that would head that direction. Uh, and again, if you look at yeah. just the, United Methodist Church since 1968. Our track record has not been good, better than some denominations, worse than others. But I think maybe, you know, if we get freed from some of the uh, structures that we're part of now, we, we might can, on, on all levels and all expressions, uh, be a little more empowered to, to do what God's calling us to do. I hope so. Yeah, I, I hope so, Jeff. I mean, I really want that. And and I think the church is going to have to be very intentional about um, finding new ways of reaching into um, communities where we've not been particularly effective in evangelism before. But I, I think we can do that. I think God is going to lead us in that direction if we're humble and faithful. One of the great... Sorry, Melissa. Ladies first. I was going to ask, uh, what would you say to those listeners out there who um, might view a more traditionalist approach to Methodism as um, too legalistic for them or see it in that type of fashion? What kind of safeguards would you say are in place that um, in the new expressions of Methodism to um, prevent accountability in belief and in practice from being seen as nothing more than legalistic bondage. Yeah, um, I don't think that most people who have, most people who have lived in traditional expressions of Methodism would describe it that way, but maybe opponents of of that tradition would describe it that way. I would say that the, the rules that we have as Methodists are not meant to be um, gates. They're meant to be pathways, okay? And they're meant to be pathways into the life of God. So we say, 
like let's say that we implemented a rule that we wanted people to be in class meetings okay why do we why do we do that do we want to do it so that we can lock people out of the kingdom do we want to do it so that it'll be harder to be a methodist i mean we want to do it because we believe that holiness of heart is formed in community with other believers and if you engage in these practices that you're going to um you're going to grow in your relationship with god and god is going to pour his spirit into you and you're going to be changed as a person it's going to be good for your life all of the means of grace that wesley talked about the, the so-called ordinances of god that he speaks about say in the general rules okay what are these meant to do um the reading of scripture uh public worship prayer fasting these kinds of things what are these meant the, the the lord's supper what these are meant to do is draw you into the life of god so that you're changed by god into the person that god always meant for you to be and and these parts of your life that you say gosh you know i'm just struggling i just can't do this. you could say i don't have to live this way anymore i have freedom in christ i have victory in christ um obviously there have to be structures of accountability um, because we have a way of ordering our life together and if we can't agree on a way of ordering our life together then we can't really have life together and so we agree upon how we're going to order our life together and when people um decide they're not going to live that way anymore we say okay the lord bless you but this is not how our community how life in our community is going to be carried out there are other communities if you want to live in a way that's different than the way that we've agreed to live together because because if we can't have an agreed upon way of living together right then we don't really have any shared practice and we don't really have any shared values and that's that's a great question melissa now i'll say only partly facetiously that in in the methodist congregations i've pastored i you know i've ran into legalistic people never felt like we were legalistic churches it was my tenure as a superintendent working for the connection trying to um uphold the book of discipline which is a very complex large book that i felt like i was dealing with legalism almost on a daily basis um, and that's why part of what I hope God brings out of this new movement is a reset. Even with the structure hierarchy, uh, I think we're overlaid with a lot of different, um, so many, I mean, rules are significant and important, but yeah, they don't always become pathways. I, I right. love that image, David. Yeah, it is possible. Yeah. It is possible to fall into legalism. And, and we're all, I mean, one of the good things about Methodism is that it involves a process, a practice of self-examination. Yeah. It gives us the opportunity to say, okay, what are my motivations? What's in my heart? Why am I doing this? Why are we doing this? Yeah, we need to remember that traditionalist Methodism, you know, it makes me think about what Lisa said, let's be rigorous in judging ourselves and lenient in judging others. And for anyone listening or watching that thinks that a future expression of traditional Methodism is going to be a stone throwing affair, um, they are mistaken because uh, that's not the heart of the gospel. And it's not also not the heart of the Wesley's. I mean, even the Wesley brothers were accused of works righteousness. I mean, they almost got killed by riots and stuff, right? Uh, yeah. Because they were so committed to personal holiness um, for what, what it's worth. But David, this has been great, but I'm very mindful of your time. Uh, maybe you let me close with this question. Is there, given all this topic, this, this discussion we've had, is there anything hanging out there that you would like to say to us? Uh, Be reminded, we, we, we have a lot of uh, listeners in Belgium. So. We do, we have a lot of <laughs> listeners in Belgium. I can't remember if I told you that. Uh, our, our, pod, our podcasts go around the world. That, that definitely changes what I was going to say, Clark. If, if you can speak Swiss or French, now <laughs> you wouldn't want to hear it. Um, I guess what I want to, what I want to say is um, 
you know, the cultural tailwinds of Christianity uh, are not behind us anymore in the West. That, that day is over. It's, it's not going to be easy to be um, part of any traditional expression of Christianity. You know, I, I read the Benedict Option a while back, and sometimes I think it's alarmist, and sometimes I think it isn't. Um, but we're going to have to, Methodism, you know, Scott, Scott Kisker, my friend Scott Kisker, um, who's actually in the next office for me right now, wrote a book called Mainliner Methodist. So which do we want to be? Do we want to be mainline or do we want to be Methodist? Because once we begin to chase the world's approval, which we want, want it to be liked by um, cultural influencers, um, once we wanted to seat at the table with the important people of the world, that's when we really lost our witness. Mm. And we're going to have to be ready um, to offer our witness in the midst of a world that thinks we are um, delusional at best. And it's not going to be easy. Um, but that's what the gospel requires. I mean, Christ is very um, clear about this. You know, in Luke, he says, nobody builds a tower unless you count the cost first. And I, I just want to, I want to be part of a, a movement of people who are completely committed to Christ in their lives, uh, for whom Christ is the center. Christ is the most important thing. And I, and I know there are people like that now in the UMC, but there's so much other noise and there's so much other clutter and there's so much other junk going on that I, I, that sometimes I can't see that. And, and that's in part my, my shortcoming. But um, for a new traditional expression of Methodism, we're going to have to be ready to be a countercultural movement and to own what comes along with that. But if we can do that, if, if we will, um, if we'll have the necessary courage and rigor to do that, then I think God is going to bless it. David, thank you so much for your time. I, we're so grateful for your I'm gift grateful. and time. Thank you. Uh, we're grateful for the people who, who are listening to us and will be listening to us. And um, I tell people all the time, I, some people are very frightened by this point in history. They're very anxious about this point in yeah. history. I, I, I've never been as excited in my ministry as I am right now. God is doing something new. Yeah. I think it's going to bless in so many different ways. Uh, I right. think all of the expressions will come out renewed in some way. And we just have to do this in an encouraging Christian way. And the world around me will be blessed by it. Yeah, amen to that. And and I really appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation with you all today. Thank you. It's been, it's been a great, great conversation. So uh, all of you, go in peace. And um, let's look and see what God's going to do in the days and years to come. God bless you. Thanks. Take care.